Dartmouth College against Woodward, 1819. These are the facts. The case of trustees of Dartmouth College against Woodward is now before the Supreme Court. It is 1819. The prominent New England lawyer and congressman, Daniel Webster, is about to make his appeal to the court on behalf of his alma mater, Dartmouth College. Its conservative and self-perpetuating board of trustees is attempting to free itself of newly imposed state political control. This is a political struggle between the popular Republicans and the aristocratic Federalists, who have each year grown older and fewer. Under the laws amending the Charter, the Governor and Council of New Hampshire will have the power to appoint a majority of the board of trustees and to select its successors. A jury heard the case and approved the state's plan. So did the New Hampshire High Court. The argument by Daniel Webster, the attorney for Dartmouth College. May it please the court. The charter of Dartmouth College was granted by the King of England. Relying on this, Dr. Wheelock and others gave land and money. And the doctor made his will, leaving property and trust to the new college. Today, the trustees ask the court's permission to continue this public trust as the founder designed it. Little did he think the legislature would ever take away this property or these privileges and give them to others. Little did he suppose that this charter secured to him and his successors no legal rights. Little did the other donors think so. Before the revolution... Not even the king could abolish a corporation, nor remodel it, nor reduce its power without its consent. This legislature, as successor to the king, can have no greater authority. The charter is a contract with the college. The constitution forbids a state to change rights and duties created by contract, to pass bills of attainder, to make retroactive laws, or to grant titles of nobility. In one small phrase, the Constitution wipes out the most arbitrary of sovereign powers. These acts are made unfit for Republican legislation. To destroy this charter is to destroy liberty. To destroy this charter is to succumb to the tyranny of the majority. For liberty is only freedom from arbitrary acts of government. The Charter gave these trustees power to form a college and to direct it as one indivisible body forever. Can this legislature restrict the privilege of perpetual existence to only 50 years? In my humble opinion, such a suggestion is indefensible. Your Honours, it is only a small college, and yet... There are those who love it. The argument by the attorney for Woodward. May it please the court. Dartmouth's charter was granted by the English king to promote and foster a public trust, the education of youth. That charter was a grant of political power. It allowed the founders and trustees of Dartmouth College to create a corporation, an entity endowed with the rights of an individual, so long as the public interest in education was being served. 
but the aristocratic doctrines of the Federalists who hold this corporation by a death grip are no longer, if they ever were, in the interests of the people of New Hampshire. The amendment of this grant of public power, or even its repeal, can be no more a breach of contract than the amendment or repeal of any other law. The constitutional protection of contracts cannot extend to areas which the state must govern. A marriage is a contract and private. But this mystical clause of the Constitution does not deny a state's power to grant divorces which destroy the contract. The creation of corporations is also the state's duty. How can a Republican legislature be powerless to modify a regal grant made under a regal and colonial policy? If the whimsy of monarchy can so constrict the power of this state to govern, what benefit has the revolution brought? I, for one, cannot believe it was only to perpetuate the superiority of men to laws. Yet that is what the college asks, immunity from the law. The Opinion of the Court by Mr. Justice Marshall This court can be insensible neither to the magnitude nor delicacy of this question. On more than one occasion, this court has declared that in no doubtful case would it pronounce a legislative act to be contrary to the Constitution. But the American people have said in the Constitution of the United States that no state shall pass any bill of attainder, ex post fact law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts. In the same instrument they have also said that the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under the Constitution. On the judges of this court is imposed the high and solemn duty of protecting, even from legislative violation, those contracts which the Constitution of our country has placed beyond legislative control. And, however irksome the task may be, this is a duty from which we dare not shrink. A corporation is an artificial being, invisible, intangible, and existing only in contemplation of law. The objects for which a corporation is created are universally such as the government wishes to promote. They are deemed beneficial to the country, and this benefit constitutes an ample compensation for the faculty it confers, and the corporation is created. This is plainly a contract to which the donors, the trustees, and the crown, to whose rights and obligations New Hampshire succeeds, were the original parties. It is a contract for the security and disposition of property. It is a contract on the faith of which real and personal estate has been conveyed to the corporation. It is then a contract within the letter of the Constitution and within the spirit also. The opinion of the court, after mature deliberation, is that this is a contract, the obligation of which cannot be impaired without violating the Constitution of the United States. This opinion appears to us to be equally supported by reason 
and by the former decisions of this court. The whole power of governing the college is transferred from trustees appointed according to the will of the founder expressed in the charter to the executive of New Hampshire. The will of the state is substituted for the will of the donors in every essential operation of the college. This is not an immaterial change. The founders of the college contracted not merely for the perpetual application of the funds which they gave to the objects for which those funds were given, they also contracted to secure that application by the constitution of the corporation. It results from this opinion that the acts of the legislature of New Hampshire are repugnant to the constitution of the United States and that the judgment ought to have been for the college plaintiffs. The judgment of the state court must, therefore, be reversed. Mr. Webster and the Federalists have carried the day for academic freedom from political pressure. And by the same stroke, so too have all private corporations been freed from the annoyance of political oversight. It will be a long time before private corporations, turnpike companies, bridges, ferries, and other businesses will be made responsible to the public for their acts. But history will show that private interests cannot really be superior to law. States will reserve the right to amend or revoke future charters. Courts will find ways of limiting the perpetual immunity Chief Justice Marshall suggests by a fine reading of the charters themselves. And other state power will become more important to the courts than the right of private property. The police power, the power of eminent domain, and the power to act where the public welfare is threatened. But in the Capitol tonight, the news will tell only of Webster's success and the Republicans' defeat and of the unyielding federalism of the Supreme Court.